This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Are you up on fashion trends? One major trend is the amount of waste that the clothing industry generates. The Environmental Protection Agency estimates Americans throw away 16 million tons of clothes every year. Most of that ends up in landfills. Some indigenous designers are taking sustainability to heart and creating clothes from existing materials. We're talking about sustainable fashion with native designers right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Grovant and Assiniboine tribes of north-central Montana are closing in on a bipartisan deal to settle their water rights in Congress. The more than $1 billion policy comes after decades of negotiations and would close out a century of tribal water disputes in the state. Montana Public Radio's Austin Amistoy reports. Fort Belknap President Jeffrey Stiffarm told the Committee of U.S. Senators Wednesday his community made great sacrifices to strike the deal. We succeeded, ceded a lot of land away that we wanted, that was rightfully ours, that was taken from us. We put that aside when we thought, you know, water is more important. The Fort Belknap Reservation is home to the Grovant and Assiniboine tribes. It's the last of seven reservations in Montana without a water compact. More than 100 years ago, the tribes were at the center of a 1908 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that found water rights were implied in tribal treaties. Montana's Democratic Senator John Tester thanked Stiffarm and Montana politicians for negotiating the compromise agreement. For years, we've talked about moving this settlement forward. and this Congress, we got a real shot. If Congress approves the compact, the tribes would receive federal dollars to repair and improve an aging irrigation project that provides water to more than 120,000 acres of farmland. Montana Lieutenant Governor Kristen Juris told committee members her state's legislature passed the Fort Belknap Compact in 2001. And yes, President Stiffarm, it is after a century time to close this circle and grant this tribe the water rights that were intended for them. Committee Chair Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii said lawmakers would work to pass the policy as expeditiously as possible. I'm Austin Amistoy. Fishing, camping, kayaking, and a year full of all-expenses-paid living. That's off a poster from the Carlick Tribal Council that went viral last month. They're looking to pay two families with four children each to move to the village in Alaska in an effort to get state funding and reestablish a school. KMXT's Brian Venwa has more. Within a week, between four and 5,000 people responded to the poster. Catherine Reft is the Carlick Tribal Council's secretary and treasurer. She says they never could have anticipated the response. Just figured we'd try to do something like this just to see if we'd get any kind of attention. We never knew it was going to blow up. The native village of Carlick is on the southwest end of Kodiak Island and has less than 50 year-round residents. The state of Alaska only funds a school if a village has 10 children. The school there closed in 2018 due to low enrollment and now there's only two kids in the community. Reft says the tribe is willing to pay families to move there including housing, utilities, and even a food stipend for a year in the hopes of getting a new school. We tried going through agencies and we just couldn't find any interest 
interest, and then somebody brought up, why don't we get a poster out there? The tribe has heard from families across the country as far as Florida and even internationally from Canada and the Philippines about its ad. The Kodiak Island Borough has kept up the former school building's heat and electricity. With some maintenance, it could reopen and host classes again. Cindy Mecca is the Kodiak Island Borough School District Superintendent. She says the district was caught off guard by the poster, but is open to helping the village. If they make those 10 students, then, you know, we'll have to do something. But, you know, at this point, it's going to be very difficult staffing it at this late of a date. KABSD struggled to fill rural positions last year and faced huge budget cuts last month. Mika says she understands it's difficult for the community to grow without a school for their kids. The clock is ticking, though. The state counts student populations for schools in October. REFT, the tribe's secretary and treasurer, says they hope to bring new families soon. We're going to try to get families here before the end of August, before the school year. Have them settled in their house and ready for school. The Tribal Council will sort through applications in the next few weeks. I'm Brian Benoit. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by StrongHearts Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. The second annual Nakota Lawrence Youth Hoop Dance Championship comes to Santa Fe's Museum of Indian Arts and Culture August 5th and 6th. Registration for native hoop dancers up to 26 years old open through August 3rd at lightningboyfoundation.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, your National Humanities Medal-winning radio show and podcast. What happens to clothes that go out of style, don't fit, or fade past their original luster? Some clothes make it to thrift stores, but the Environmental Protection Agency says the vast majority of unwanted clothing ends up in landfills. Some indigenous designers are responding to the environmental costs of the fashion industry with a focus on recycling, repurposing, or upcycling existing clothing and textiles. Others are mining the vast surplus of used clothes to find new value in vintage designs. In this hour, we'll talk with Native people putting sustainability into their fashion sensibility. Let us know your thoughts. Do you shop for sustainability? Do you go to thrift stores? Do you use secondhand materials in your craft work? How long are you willing to hang on to an old pair of jeans? If you're cool sharing that information, call 1-800-996-2848. Get those calls in early. We'll get you on the air. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us first in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is Amy Danette Deal. She's the founder of Four Kinship, and she is Dene. Amy, welcome to the show. Hey there. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. And in Rocky Boy, Montana, we're joined by Rebecca Jarvie. She's an indigenous fashion show coordinator and designer. She's Chippewa Cree and Blackfeet enrolled at the Rocky Boy Indian Reservation. Rebecca, welcome. Tantra, it's good to be here. Good to have you, Rebecca. 
And in Cubero, New Mexico, we have Ira Vandiver. He's the owner of Turquoise Indigo Indigo Fibers, and he is Dene as well. Ira, nice to have you. Oh, yes. Hey, Ben. Good morning, Sean. Yate to you as well, Ira. Joining us from Commerce City, Colorado is Tomas Lopez Jr. He is an artist and content creator. He is Chicano and Sikanju Lakota. Tomas, welcome to the show as well. Hey, honey, waste. Buenos dias, everyone. <laughs> Love that intro, Tomas. And uh, joining us also from the state of South Dakota in Rapid City is Caitlin Hine. She is the owner of Garbage Tail Vintage, and she is Sikanju Lakota. Caitlin, hi, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, wonderful. Just excited to start this conversation. And let's have Amy kick us off. And Amy, like we mentioned in the intro, you know, clothes are just made and they're thrown away in huge quantities. I know because I think I'm like one of the biggest defenders. I throw all kinds of clothes in the trash. But we also hear how cheap and low quality much of the clothing is nowadays. Fast fashion, they call it. Can you help our listeners understand this trajectory of clothing that has led us up to this point of where we know now as fast fashion? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm coming from 40 years experience in the fashion industry. So some of those years were actually working in a corporate environment before I started for kinship. So what that means is things were produced in countries far, far away in huge quality at quantities, all based on getting low price. And it just damages the environment. We now know that there's so many ways that these dyes that these fibers and then you know the fact that we throw so much away makes its way into our ocean and into our air and just isn't done in a thoughtful conscious way and as native people you know we always want to have that harmony we want to have that harmony with the planet with you know the plants with the animals and with each other so it's really looking at other ways that we can produce things still you know pushing things from a style standpoint but really being conscious of how we bring that to market. So for Kinship is uh, an upcycle brand. We do a lot of one-of-a-kind work where we restore, recycle, recolorize, you know, a lot of re's, which means we're just reusing things that are already here on the planet um, and really just, you know, keeping things in balance. Mm-hmm. Now, Amy, I think a lot of our listeners, me included, are familiar with the term recycle, but tell us exactly what do you mean by upcycle? Upcycle, and that's a question I get a lot as people walk into the shop because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, there's ways that you can take a vintage item and simply restore it, bring it back to life, and really show people how that can be worn in a new way. Uh, We do a lot of recolorization in our upcycle process, which means we might take a garment that's stained, damaged, um, or just wants to kind of make its way into a new color palette where we'll actually re-dye and create artwear pieces uh, using color um, or using graphics or using painting on them. You know, there's different ways to actually find a new way to utilize something already here on the planet. And then also just looking at doing actual reconstruction of taking things that, um, for example, in our line, we have vintage military parachutes that we upcycle into beautiful ball gowns, um, re-dye them, repurpose them into something completely different than what it was before. Mm. Well, you're talking about parachutes. I'm thinking about those old parachute pants from the 80s. Those were big when when I was in high school. And it's that same material, right? That it's like that no rip fabric. Yeah. Amazing fabric. And, you know, we make it into an actual red carpet outlook. 
Wow. Wow. Well, it sounds like upcycling, then you're just taking these old clothes to a new level. Like you're just making them like better than they were kind of. I feel like I don't like calling them old clothes. I think they're just pieces that, you know, are inspiring to all of us. They come from another place, another time. They were loved. We always say pre-loved and pre-worn because there's a really special energy attached to things. I think anybody on here that collects vintage, you feel that energy to these garments from another time. And it's simply just finding the beauty in them and restoring them and bringing them back to life. It's a beautiful meditative process in design to actually focus on just one thing. Well, Amy, I mean, like we mentioned earlier, there's all these clothes out there. Uh, some of this stuff's really cheap. I mean, I mean, where can people go? Listeners on the show right now, where can you just get good stuff? It's fashionable. That's cool. That's not going to break your wallet. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes with just um, kind of being aware as you travel through the world. If you're on a road trip and you see beautiful little vintage shops, stop and take a look and see if something speaks to you. Um, Being based here in Santa Fe, we go to a lot of estate sales and really collect some things that are really old, like Victorian era, early 1920s that we get to work with. But just kind of, you know, always being aware to repurpose things that are already out there. And um, really do some, you know, research, look on Instagram, think of how you can restyle that piece to really bring it back to life. Now, Amy, I know you originally had a shop in Albuquerque, and then you moved up to Santa Fe. What led to that move? Yeah, we just wanted to represent. I mean, right now we're the only native-owned retail space in all of Santa Fe, and it's a huge tourist destination for people to experience um, native culture and arts. So we felt it was so important. We had our storefront here to really show people that we belong here and to really bring a whole group of young, talented um, artists and designers into the space so they get a place to start as well and making 100% back on, you know, all those sales kind of gives them that boost to start their own business. Um, And also just to kind of show the city how you can live in reciprocity and how you can give back a lot of our profits and a lot of our time is spent really looking at sustainability, not just the clothes we sell, but also looking at how we can be in harmony with our community. So a lot of our sustainability goes to looking at sustainable solutions for the future that we do through a brand platform. Uh, we just built a skate park out in Two Gray Hills in New Mexico Um, for a bunch of kids out there that live remote that just don't have access to parks and outdoor recreation. So, you know, it's projects like that that really show how native designers, native brands can lead the way. Mm -hmm. That sounds really exciting, Amy. And you use the, the word sustainable, sustainability, and that's another one of these words that just gets thrown around everywhere nowadays. I mean, what does that word really mean to you? I don't know. I always look at that as, you know, where my feet are on the ground and how I can live in relationship um, with everything where I am. So I think, you know, when we talk about sustainability from an indigenous perspective, like I get asked that question a lot on interviews and it's nothing new to Native people. That's all part of our, our culture. That's part of who we are is being those caretakers of the earth, the planet and everything here. But it's also being responsible, you know, and looking to do this work through our brand platforms that can make a difference for the future generations. 
and to inspire them to take, you know, steps in moving into a sustainable fashion brand or sustainable design in what they do. So, yeah, definitely giving back and being part of our community here in the Southwest is such an important part of how I, I want to express what our brand is in, about from a, a complete sustainability standpoint. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned as Native people, we've been doing the whole sustainability thing <laughs> pretty much since the beginning. But I don't know, Amy, when I was a kid, uh, my mom just called it hand-me-downs. She didn't really use the word sustainability, but I guess that's what we were doing, right? Just taking up the making those pants last another generation or so and, and wearing that stuff. Yeah, that... <laughs> or making them look, you know, just, I don't know. I think indigenous creativity, it, it's like we can do so many things with what is already here. I love that idea of, of being creative within this different platform and not constantly creating new things and definitely creating new things that are toxic to the environment. It's just crazy to me when I see everything after COVID still continuing on, like we didn't learn anything during that time. So I think yeah. it's really a time to do things a little slower, a little bit more thoughtfully to really stand back and think, okay, what am I doing with my life in mm -hmm. this design career? Is it just to make clothes or do we want to do something bigger, you know, with the brand platform? So definitely during that time, I had a lot of really, you know, beautiful thoughts that came in and, and different ways I wanted to proceed in life and um, just really grateful to all the community we have here in the Southwest that came together during that time. Well, right on, Amy. We're going to have to take a, a short break. Listeners, join the conversation today. Sustainable Native Fashion. Phone number 1-800-996-2848. Tell us uh, how you incorporate sustainability into your clothing or your family's clothing. Producers are standing by to take your call. Call in 1-800-996-2848. This is Sean Spruce, host of Native America Calling. You can listen in every weekday to hear the only national call-in show from a Native American perspective. We explore topics that range from traditional cultural practices to up-to-the-minute news that affects every American. We hope you can join us for the next Native America Calling. If you're tuned in to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about sustainable fashion today. Do you buy jeans, t-shirts, and sweaters at vintage stores? Or do you make sure the clothing you buy is made from sustainable materials? Join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest is up in Rocky Boy, Montana, Rebecca Jarvie. And Rebecca, earlier we heard Amy use the term vintage, and that's another one of these words that gets thrown around all the time. But, I mean, at what point does a piece of clothing become just old versus become vintage? 
Um, so for me, my personal definition between old and vintage is uh, is like how Amy, she described the love. Um, like if you love something, uh, that's what I think. Um, I Last year in my Being Indigenous is So Beautiful collection, I used vintage acid wash Wrangler jeans, and they were pink, and they were from the 80s. And um, a lot of moms, they, like, stopped me, and they loved them, and they were like, oh, they brought back so many memories, like, from their high school days and <laughs> how cool they were, you know, they were and stuff. And and for me, it's just, I, it's, like, personal style, and they were called vintage because they were still in good shape, but after a certain point in life, um, you know, then it becomes vintage, and like I think it's 20 years and then it's vintage and then something old is um you know something that maybe is worn out are you are you know you just don't have an interest or that love for it anymore so that's mm -hmm. my personal definition <laughs> okay so like a 20 year time frame is kind of the ballpark but Rebecca I mean that's what makes it so tough because like some of this stuff like you mentioned these acid wash jeans from the 80s those are back those are cool that's right but some of that old stuff it, it doesn't ever come back some stuff just goes away so it's it's kind of a little bit of a crapshoot isn't it between like what becomes cool and, and fashionable again and what just doesn't because I think it's some of those old styles like some of that stuff like those old velour shirts like i remember like my dad used to wear these plaid pants back in the 70s man nobody's wearing that kind of stuff anymore um i mean i believe there is people wearing that stuff that you just don't see them or maybe overlook it um everybody you know has their certain style that they just keep on and they keep uh, going or wearing um uh, like plaid i love plaid material like I was uh, fortunate enough to get gifted in my community um, some plaid material for Makuka uh, for many years ago, and now I wear it as a fancy dance dress, or I put it on models at fashion shows, and it is crazy because I just made it simple, like with no ribbon work, just a simple plaid uh, tea dress, and it, and the like response I get on it is very good um and it's you know it's plaid it's browns and earth tone colors and it's not like the most flashiest thing but um so i think it's just like how you could take it and style it and upgrade it then you could just make anybody fall in love with it mm, nice really cool and rebecca upcycling clothing i mean amy gave us a little rundown on what that means i mean can anybody do this stuff at home or, or do they need to go to, to somebody like you that has an expertise to do this kind of stuff? Oh, anybody could upcycle. Um, I love, love upcycling. And uh, like I first learned about it from my mom when I was younger, um, beading and sewing. My mom had like her scrap, her scrap piles from like leftover buckskin when she was making moccasins. Then she had her scrap pile from leftover material when she was sewing my dresses and dancing outfits. And um, so uh, that's where I first learned about, you know, like scraps and the importance of saving them and you could reuse them and always integrate them into other projects. And uh, during COVID, 
Um, it was very, you know, it was a very hard time, but it was also a significant time too for Mother Earth because um, research shows that, you know, that was the first time like in years that um, our pollution decreased. And so that was good for Mother Earth. And another um, good thing about it was that um, SOAS and people like me, um, instead of shopping in stores, I shopped in my closet and I pulled out like those old tattered jeans and that's when I upcycled them and I uh, turned them into ribbon jeans and I added uh, material and ribbon work on them and they became a very big staple in my collections now and people from all over want to order them and stuff so it's always about you know uh, looking within and seeing what you have and then making it your personal style and um, everybody I always say has you know a gift um, uh, us and that's the beautiful thing about us indigenous people uh, we are knowledge keepers and um, language keepers and we bring laughter and we're sewers we're beaters we have the humor and so everybody has those ideas and then it's just about taking something um, from their closet and you know and creating it in their own liking in their own way now rebecca you have a ready-to-wear collection tell us more about it is it all upcycled stuff um, and no, um, so I have two collections. Um, I'm a very small business and um, I've been in business since COVID 2020. And so this is my first year of having a ready to wear. Um, I, I didn't want to at first go in that direction, but due to being such a small business and I, I don't do fashion full time. This is like my, sec my it's my uh, side hustle. So I uh, did the ready-to-wear. So my ready-to-wear is um, I only make limited pieces, and uh, but the ribbon jeans, that is in my luxury. So I call it Indigenous Luxury Collection. Um, I don't call it couture just because of, like, my sewing is not, like, super, super perfect or it's not, like, you know, um, couture. So I call it luxury because it's, like, ribbon skirts and uh, the ribbon jeans I talked about and um, the the night and day mask I did that was from a bunch of recycled our old um, purses and stuff. So that's my luxury, my luxury collection. That sounds super cool. Let's uh, go to the phones now where we have Sage on the line calling in. Hello, Sage. Hi, Sean. Hey. Hey. Thank you, Tom. What are you as well? How you doing, sister? I'm doing good. Hi, I'm Sage Mountainflower. I'm um, also um, a fashion designer, and I know um, of everybody that's on the line, so it's good hearing about their work and, and their new stuff that's come out. I've been following them all. Right I'm excited on. to get some material from Ira, so that's going to be cool. We're going to work on some little collaboration here. I'm excited to to get his uh, his material. He's been trying to get um, me to use for quite some time now, so that'll be cool. Well, Sage, thanks uh, for calling in. Appreciate it. And giving a shout-out to Ira as well. And uh, let's go ahead and let Ira respond to Sage. Ira, of course, is the owner of Turquoise Indigo Fibers, and he's in Cubero, New Mexico. Ira, sounds like uh, Sage and, and a lot of other people are big customers of yours. 
Oh, man, I've been begging uh, Sage to take my uh, stuff and make something beautiful out of it for a long time, and she finally said yes. So I'm happy to say we got that in the mail this this week to her, and she should be getting it uh, sometime early next week, which will be nice. All right. How does that sound, Sage? It's in the mail. Excited. I'm excited. I even asked my daughter, Jalen. I was like, hey, did my package come in yet? So I'm glad it's on its way. But yeah, I'm I'm the same way with sustainable fashion. You know, um, I do a lot of work with uh, my scraps. <laughs> so a lot of the creation, like the Fendi Tewa collection I had last year um, or throughout this year is, you know, based on the scrap material from the previous project I made, you know, and it's just keeps evolving in, in that manner. So I'm doing the same thing. I haven't done the ready-made because, you know, I'm actually an environmental tribal director and I know adding to that space of, you know, waste is always on, my, on the back of my mind with things too. So, there you, you know, go. it's just like, what is yeah. fashion? You know, how is it, how is it like incorporated in, in my work? And, and I do it because, you know, like I like it. It's my release of like Rebecca, a side hustle, but, you know, I always have that in mind of the, you know, mm-hmm. creating more to throw away, you know? <laughs> <don't> know. <laughs> right on. Well, right on, Sage. I appreciate you calling in today and joining the conversation. That's Sage Mountainflower, OK Wingate designer. And let's go back now to Ira, who's also on the line. And Ira, tell us more about your business, Turquoise Indigo Fibers, and how do you implement sustainability and upcycling and all these things we're talking about today? Yeah, thanks, uh, Sean. Uh, the whole idea of what we've got going on started in the cottage industry, kind of like how everybody's uh, talking about it. Um, but we found ourselves in research and development and asking our question of what sustainability actually is because I grew up with my grandmother and grandfather and she was a weaver and we had uh, livestock and um, she was uh, very adamant about making everything from the seed all the way you know or the animal all the way to the uh, waist of each uh, garment that she made and, and, and stuff that she did so I, I know what sustainable was but I couldn't describe it before just like everybody else so, but then we found out when we were making our shawls, uh, my uh, sister, uh, Shaylee Vandiver, took a chance and uh, started uh, weaving with hemp um, that we had gotten from the Anishinaabe Agricultural Institute uh, in Minnesota. And um, at that time, the hemp was being outlawed on the Navajo Nation. So we got involved with the policy side of it as well. Um, what people don't understand is that it goes all the way to the animals being raised and um, um, having enough sheep and flocks and and do you have enough land, do you have enough water to have that kind of sustainable, uh, know where everything comes from um, business. And uh, we sought out to make that. And that's what Turquoise Indigo Fibers is. Um, we, we are able to measure sustainability by... Um, how much electricity is used or no electricity being used, uh, the distance uh, that our uh, fibers travel, um, the amount of hands that change, the amount of water that's being used. And you can actually compare it to a cotton T-shirt. And uh, most people don't know, like if you want to have something in a mass-produced scale, you've got to send it from North Carolina down to Mexico to be spun 
and then back up, you know, to where or to China and all around. And it travels a long ways before it gets to where uh, you can buy it, even at a flea market. So we wanted to set that out and measure it and be able to uh, also create zero waste systems. And I think everybody seems to be good at that. When you when you have a, a, a market to where you create a, a a yarn, there's so much waste that goes up to creating that final ball of yarn. So we were using the waste in hemp adobe and hempcrete, um, mixing them together and creating building materials as well, insulation and stuff like that. So we were trying to figure out how we can scale basically to get out of the cottage industry and m- mass produce something. Ira, this is such an eye-opener listening to you describe, you know, the power usage and the distance, how much water is used. I mean, this really puts it all in perspective, and especially with regard to to how this stuff has to travel around, because I understand another aspect of what you're doing is focusing on some of these classical indigenous trade routes that these fibers traveled on years ago. Absolutely, and if we're working with someone in Minnesota when we go up there, we're not only bringing back hemp, we're bringing back maple syrup and wild rice. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, man, this is just like probably what they did back in the old, because there wasn't any boundaries, right? There were no states. There were no up and down, you know, checkpoints. We went from Canada or even further all the way down to Mexico trading stuff. And and I, and we found out you can't just scale something and make it sustainable. It, it takes a lot of small cottage industries uh, in local areas using uh, resources within a 100-mile radius, and then um, sending those further out is how the formula used to work from Chaco Canyon all the way down to a- Aztec country or up towards, um, you know, uh, the Bering Strait, wherever we used to go and trade, you know. So we want to feel like we can open up all those because if we have – Indigenous drivers, indigenous manufacturers, indigenous agricultural uh, people growing stuff, we capture the entire chain. And once we capture the entire chain, then we can have more control over it. And that that includes, you know, the sustainability and using uh, no pesticides and et cetera, et cetera. And that's Mm -hmm. the indigenous standard that we'd like to create. Now, Ira... This all sounds wonderful, but I can think of somebody perhaps listening right now and saying, okay, this is all cool, all these, you know, sustainable methods and things, but but what's the cost? I mean, is it is it a lot more expensive to make clothing in this way that you describe in these fibers and these textiles? Well, we really want to bring back what my grandmother and grandfather used to teach. They thought about like seven generations. And my grandma would talk about what poly was and what plastic was. So you have short-term costs and you have long-term costs. But we, we haven't even had health baseline studies to say, is the cancer coming from the uh, pesticides in the, in the textiles that we wear every day? Is it dangerous to have, you know, plastic in our clothing? Is it dangerous to have all the building materials in our house out of these toxic, you know, stuff. And, and mm-hmm. I think asbestos and insulation are perfect examples. But having, we don't even know because the um, healthcare industry hasn't done health baseline studies long enough to say it's coming from the things we wear or the dyes. And I mean, imagine when you perspirate, you know, whatever's in that clothing goes into your body or onto, into your pores. And you have to assume that if it's toxic, it's also going into your system as well. Right, right. 
So it sounds to me like uh, for you, any added cost is, is going to be worth it in the long run in terms of sustainability and health and all of these other factors that you're mentioning. Absolutely. And if you have uh, a system, you have all these ancillary pr uh, products that come from producing one uh, piece of fabric. So now we have people that um, are getting into 3D printing filament from the waste. And, and you can go on from there. And, and, and the, the indigenous imagination or creativity can take it to a whole new level on, on anything you can think of. So I think there's chances to open up a new economy and it would uh, surround uh, even uh, the whole fashion world. And we have fashion designers at the New York City Fashion Show. Uh, my sister went there. Her name is Angel Chang, and she's making huge waves in the fashion industry, stating exactly that, that this is a big, big, huge problem, the waste and the uh, pesticides and the unnatural dyes. You're listening to... Ira Vandiver, he's with Turquoise Indigo Fibers. We have to take another break, but when we come back, we're going to talk with our other guests on the show, Tomas Lopez Jr. and Caitlin Hine. Stay with us, folks. We will be right back. Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right. When you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're focusing on sustainable fashion today. How important is it to you as a consumer or designer that your clothing is made in a sustainable way? How do you weigh cost, quality, durability, and fashionability when you shop? These are just a few of the thought-provoking questions to consider for today's conversation. Call us at 1-800-996-2848 to share your insights. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got another caller on the line right now up in Cheyenne River, South Dakota, Lacey Turninghart. Hello, Lacey. Hello, sir. How are you today? I'm doing great. Lacey, how about yourself? I'm doing wash day. <laughs> all right, all right. I understand you want to give a shout-out to one of our guests? Yes, uh, to all of our designers, but mainly to Ms. Rebecca Jarvie for the new design she made with the Nike uh, company. And thank you for paving the way for uh, us that would like to make a way in the fashion world. And, um, yeah, being indigenous, and um, it could kind of show that we can uh, keep the cost of, as effective as we can. All right. So, yeah, thank you, sir. Right on, Lacey. Thank you. And I'm going to give Rebecca a chance to respond there. Rebecca, Nike partnership sounds pretty cool. Oh, thank you for that. Um, yes, and uh, thank you for that shout-out. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, being in the indigenous fashion industry, I try to, like, be a part of the whole industry because we're a very small industry and we're trying to, like, build it. And so, you know, it's important to stick together as designers and models and, and when we get these collaborations or partnerships, then, you know, um, oh, we go for it because we want to 
build that platform to give, like she said, um, people hope from the reservation that you could do anything. And so I appreciate you for that shout out. All right. Right on, Rebecca. Thank you again for responding. And let's go ahead and bring in Tomas Lopez Jr. now. And he is in Commerce City, Colorado. He's an artist and content creator. And Tomas, uh, another part of this whole sustainability question is is the idea or the practice of thrifting. And and tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say come through Nike collaboration. That's really dope. Love to see that. Love to hear that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I am um, an all-around artist. I do a lot of different uh genres and outlets of artwork but one of the things that i've always considered myself to be is an avid thrifter um growing up i'm sure a lot of people can relate to this you know i really didn't have um the financial uh standing to go out and necessarily buy all of the newest things that i wanted to as soon as i was able to actually start working i started and um because of that, I was in the thrift stores all the time with my grandmas and my aunties and my mom and my sisters, and they really did teach me, you know, what to look for. And the the uh, the adventure of and the thrill of looking for something and finding what it is that you manifested. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not only it's like it's almost this like and the capitalism here, but it's almost this spiritual thing that I, I do, you know, I can see the item in my head. I know that it's what I want and I kind of just create it. And when you go and you start to dig through everything and you find what it is that you're looking for, there's like this satisfaction in it. And I'm sure any collector on the call knows exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. So. okay. Yeah. And Tomas, but again, this is another one of these things. There is a skill here. This isn't like an art because when I go into a thrift shop, I see like a bunch of old worn stuff. It's like none of this stuff really stands out. But when somebody like you goes into the thrift shop, you see what it can become. You see the potential like that. That's like a, a like an art. Well, that and I've also come to the realization that there really is no such thing as something going out of style. That is actually a tool used by like capitalism to get people to actually consume and buy more. Like nothing goes out of style. That velour shirt that you were saying your grandfather wore, honey, that's still in. Is you it? know, you gotta okay. be Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Things what about this? What about style. this? What about this, Thomas? I wanna see somebody make a like like take a, an old leisure suit and, and make it is anybody wearing that stuff like a beaded leisure suit or something like that or or a ribbon leisure suit. I mean, anything is possible. You know, you okay. can look at one garment and what you see as a pair of pants, someone else sees as a jacket and a hat. So it's really just think about it. Anything can be anything with the just a little bit of imagination and creativity. Okay. All right. I love it. I'm really loving it. Let's go ahead and move into uh, onto Caitlin Hine now, and she is the owner of Garbage Tail Vintage. She's up in Rapid City, South Dakota. And Caitlin, tell us more about your store. Hi. So um, I started my shop, The Brick and Mortar, about a year and a half ago, and it's a curated vintage clothing store. Um, we carry things all the way from the early 1900s to the early 2000s. So as you mentioned earlier, vintage is anything that is 20 years or older, which is crazy to think about because that's 2003. Um, yeah, we cater to all different eras, all different styles, and 
yeah, we keep it. We have a pretty big variety for the shoppers. And when did you open the store and, and what prompted you to, to get into this business? Yeah, so I actually started online. I started selling on Depop um, maybe four years ago. And I started um, just selling stuff out of my closet and then stuff at the thrift store that I would find. And then I started upcycling pieces. So I would patchwork hand sew things on. Um, I would sew, sew two-piece sets, make them more modern, add fringe, just kind of spice them up a little bit. Um, and then that started going really well. Uh, during COVID, I we couldn't shop. So I just started upcycling all the stuff I had and it took off even more. And so February of 2020, what was it, 2022 now? Um, I was able to open a brick and mortar in downtown Rapid City. And okay. we're actually, so um, me and two friends, you know, Straighthead and Ryan LeBeau, we're actually starting a brand as well. It's called Alternatives. And what we're doing is we're um, upcycling a lot of vintage pieces, adding ribbon, elk teeth, uh, fringe, you name it. And uh, my friend Ryan does leather work. So she adds leather belts leather earrings and we all style them together and we actually just had our first fashion show here at native pop in rapid city this past sunday and so we're going to be launching our fall collection in september and that's going to be the big release of our brand well caitlin what's i've always found fascinating about thrift stores is is you're you're kind of like a middle person right because you connect somebody you have in a sense you have two customers you have people that bring this old stuff in and then on the other side you've got somebody who, who wants to buy that stuff and and you connect them so Tell us a little bit more about the people that come in and bring in this old clothing and, and what's on their mind. Yeah, so actually that's that's my favorite part is being the middleman because I love, um, sometimes I'll go to people's houses or they come in and usually most of the time it's older people who are letting go of their pieces or a relative um, is going through their grandmother or grandfather's closet and they come in um, and they share stories about when they wore this item all the memories that are attached with it. Um, some of these people made their own clothes. And so that is, to me, is one of the most special parts of this business. I enjoy visiting, getting to know the people um, who I get the clothes from. And then I love sharing those stories with the customers who buy. And um, a lot of people I buy from come back or their relatives come back and they'll be in the store and they'll see someone, um, someone buy some something that they wore back in the 80s or back in the 70s and it's, it's a really special moment that we all share together and oh. that's actually one of the best parts about having a brick and mortar comparing to selling online is the actual connection i get with the people so mm -hmm. yeah that's that's really beautiful i want to go back to to tomas because i think you kind of touched on this earlier tomas but listening to to caitlin describe some of this old clothing i mean this stuff has a spirit to it can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like items absorb vibrations. Like a lot of people have said on this call, like a lot of the things that they look for are not even necessarily what's in style that we're talking about. It's what type of love has been put into it. And like, I, I don't know about y'all, but my grandparents took very good care of their clothes because usually it's like they knew who made those clothes or they had a relationship with the person who made those clothes, which is 
And I feel like that's something that we've lost today in a lot when you go and you buy new garments is that you there's no relationship with it. You have no idea where it came from. Like one of the guests said earlier, it's gone from country to country to all of these different places and been touched by so many different hands that who knows what type of mood they were in when they were being forced to make these garments for pennies, you know, on the hour. Like all of those types of energy get put into these garments, whether they're old or new. So when you go to these thrift stores, I mean, you find both types of garments. You find stuff that doesn't vibrate, and you find stuff that you, the minute you see it, the minute you touch it, you feel that vibration. You feel that there's some, there was love put into it in some type of way. And that's not even just with clothes. You can thrift furniture. You, I mean, I would say furniture is even more intense sometimes. You can find things that, like, have some scary stuff happen in your house. You know, you got to be careful about the things that you buy. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother angle of it, for sure. Tomas, what first turned you on to, to thrifting? You know, I think in general, the sustainable fashion industry is what it's kind of being called now. What really ultimately drew me to it is like understanding like why and how it was that we even got here to begin with. Um, like what, why is it that we like as people feel the need to constantly consume and buy more. And like what I've come to the realization, especially with young black, brown and native kids is that like there, we're still struggling to fit in. We're still struggling to be a part of culture. We, you know, the, the, the expectation to meet the American standard is still very much so, like, a lot amongst our young people. And one of the ways to express that you fit in or that you have the status to be in this Western society is by the clothes that you wear, the shoes that are on your feet, what, what your nails look like, what your hair looks like. And the truth is, is that most of us don't actually have the means to support those lifestyles. So we go for what is accessible to us. And mm -hmm. that can be really beautiful because then you have all these really gorgeous subcultures popping up, you know, within our own cultures. And those are all very beautiful. But the only way that they're accessed is through these non-sustainable, very toxic ways of, of obtaining fashion. And to me, the way to combat that the way to actually be a solution to that was in my own backyard. It was what I had been doing the whole thing. And also like the, there's one part of thrifting, which is like, you know, you, you buy things that are used and they make you happy. But the other part of it is that you get the opportunity when you're done with that item, when that item has given you joy and it has given you love and it has, you've received all that you can from that you then have the opportunity to give it back and make okay. somebody else happy and give someone else that same experience. Yeah, for sure. Well, Tomas, the way you describe it, I mean, this is, it's more than just clothing. I mean, for you, this is a way of life. I mean, it's just uh, a whole way of just looking at not just what you're wearing, but, but, but the world in general. And I want to go back to Caitlin uh, as we begin to wrap up the show. And I mean, Caitlin, thrift stores have been around as long as I can remember, but listening to you and our other guests today, it just has me questioning is, is it a growing industry right now? I mean, are more people getting into to thrifting in some of this sustainable stuff than in the past? 
Yeah, I definitely would say so. I think, um, especially since COVID happened, uh, like uh, someone else mentioned earlier that our pollution went down during COVID. I actually didn't know that. And so that's, that's great to hear. We were a lot more slower with things. I think um, we were almost all in a state of panic. And so we had to be more tactful. We had to be a lot slower. We were um, more in tune with ourselves and our family and the world. And I think that was a big wake-up call. Um, and it was growing before, but I think especially since then, a lot of production went down. So getting stuff overseas was a lot harder. And so getting stuff that's here in our community, our, that's made by local designers or people that are in arms, arms legs, that we need that and we need to be doing that. And I think a lot more people are um, becoming a lot more supportive of that as well. And Caitlin, most of your business, is it done in person there at your store or do you do a lot online too? So now that I have a brick and mortar, I do a lot less online. Um, just trying to figure out how to juggle it all. But I do like doing stuff a bit more in person. Um, I have a website, but that's more for buying and selling like appointments. Um, and then I sell a little bit on Instagram. So it's mostly in store. Mm-hmm. Well, we got about another 30 seconds before I got to wrap it up, but I just want you to offer any advice you can to our listeners of what they can do as consumers to, to support sustainable fashion, like what you're working on. Yeah, I would say um, support local, support um, your local indigenous designers, whether it's through social media, whether it's going to Indian markets, whether it's um, going to local thrift stores. Um, I would say just, be aware of where your stuff come from, comes from and who's sourcing it as well. All right. It also sounds like don't throw away some of that old stuff in your closet because it, it never really goes out of style. You just never know. So hang on to it. Might be worth a fortune in the future. Folks, we are going to have to wrap it up now. We're out of time. But before we do, big thanks to Amy Deal, Rebecca Jarvie, Ira Vandiver, and Tomas Lopez Jr. for joining us to talk sustainable native fashion. Join us again next week for another lineup of conversations on Native issues through a Native lens. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our Chief Operations Officer. The President and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. We'll talk again soon. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. SBA wants to see you win. They want to see you grow. They have been so helpful and so resourceful. Thanks to the SBA, my business is thriving today. Make sure you get in touch with SBA and you will definitely be on your way to a winning path. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not gonna be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. 
and I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.